0: HMP.
1: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And about two weeks ago, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts made a historic decision. In the case of Commonwealth versus Mattis and a companion case, the High Court of the Commonwealth decided that persons who were convicted of murder who are between the ages of 18 and 21 cannot be sentenced to life without any possibility of parole, which is what the law has been for many years for those convicted of murder. With us in the studio, we have uh, Paul Rudolph and Ryan Schiff. They are partners in the newly combined Northampton based criminal defense term of Strahern, Ryan, and Hoos. The case, again, Commonwealth v. Mattis. Paul Rudolph, let's start with you, or would you prefer Ryan Schiff? One of you, please tell us, what did the court do and why did it do it? Ryan Schiff.
2: Thank you, Bill, and thanks thanks for having us this morning. So I think maybe it's a good idea to start with just kind of like laying out what the situation was in Massachusetts before any of this happened. Sure. So Massachusetts, as you know, doesn't have the death penalty, but Massachusetts does rely more heavily on life without parole, sentencing people to spend the rest of their life in prison without any chance of ever getting out than almost any other state.
1: And will. Massachusetts does that for first degree murder. It also does that for any number of other crimes mm-hmm. as well. And it is interesting, I think, for most people to know that the difference between first degree murder, second degree murder, and manslaughter is a sliver, a case that in front of one jury is manslaughter. Maximum of 20 years is first-degree murder in front of another jury.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you know, so Massachusetts you know, may have fewer people comp- you know, as a proportion of the population in prison than a lot of other states, but of those people who are in prison, we disproportionately sentence people to die in prison. So this case, well, let's go back to 2013. 2013, the state Supreme Court said no life without parole for people who are under the age of 18.
1: And the reason for that
2: because of just the way their brains are developed, the way they are psychologically developed, that you can't make these kinds of throw away the key and make this determination this person never can be released from prison based on what they do at such a young age.
1: And prior to that actually the, the Supreme Court of the United States making a decision right with the same the same yeah, holding essentially. Yeah. But, uh,
2: Yes, a similar holding. So, one year earlier, the US Supreme Court had said that there was no mandatory life without parole for people who were under 18, but they could give discretionary sentences of life without parole to that age group. But our state Supreme Court went a step further and said, we're not going to let these judges decide, well, this kid should die in prison and this kid, you have some possibility of parole 15 years from now. Instead, they said, this is just a decision that can't be made. There's no way a judge could accurately look at a kid who's 18, 19 years old at the time of sentencing and say, because of something you did when you were 17 or 16 years old, you're beyond hope, you should die in prison. So they said, we're gonna get rid of those sentences altogether, and they have to have a parole hearing. So those parole hearings take place you know, some years in the future for most of those people is 15 years later. And at that point, you have somebody who is a fully formed adult and they can actually the parole board can actually say have you changed um and can you be released
1: a lot of people will say two different aspects of this a lot of mm-hmm. people would say i think well wait wait a second um someone commits a horrible crime let's just say it really is no beyond all that first degree murder um yeah. and committed uh and they'll say well we don't have a death penalty life without parole is something that seems like a reasonable alternative to some people. What do you say to that?
2: Okay, so I, I think I have two responses to that. The first response is, you know, my personal general feeling, which is that we shouldn't be throwing anybody, giving up hope on anyone, no matter how old they were. But that's not what these cases were about. These cases were about this one specific age group and whether you can make those kinds of determinations, not about how bad their crimes were, nobody was saying that, Um, Life without parole, in those cases, nobody was saying that life without parole is disproportionate compared to the crime. But you also have to look, is it proportionate to the person who committed the crime? And what the court was saying was, no, for this group of people, the reason that they're doing this kind of stuff is often because of their age of development or their stage of development, not because of something inherently or permanently wrong with them. So that you couldn't make these kinds of permanent decisions about whether they should die in prison.
1: Because life in prison sounds like, well, life in prison, but it really means death in prison. It is a sentence of dying in prison. Yeah, one, one
2: of the remarkable things about doing this work is that you get to meet people who are very young when they're first sentenced to these kinds of sentences. And you see immature kids often really kids, physically underdeveloped, also mentally under, you know, just their psychological state is they're young. They wanna read like Harry Potter while they're in prison. And then you also get to meet people who are 35, 45, even, you know, 75 years old, who've now been in prison for decades and decades and to see how transformed they are and some of the most extraordinarily wonderful people I've ever met in my life have been people who've committed these terrible crimes when they were kids and now have developed into amazing people who care about the people around them, do extraordinary stuff for the people around them, and are some of the most intelligent, well-read people I've ever met.
1: Let me turn from uh, Ryan Schiff to Paul Rudolph. Uh, They are partners in the Northampton-based criminal defense firm of Strayhorn, Strayhorn, Ryan & Hoos. And I'd like to ask you, Paul, about the underlying theory of the case, which has to do with kids, young people, uh, do not have fully developed brains, do not have fully developed emotional responses. There's a difference between a 19-year-old and a 35-year-old, and particularly when it comes to making life-and-death decisions, important decisions in crisis um, The 18-year-old doesn't do as well. He's not the same person he will be after spending, say, 25 years in prison. Tell us more about, in particular, the hearing you did in Superior Court, which created the record in front of the Supreme Judicial Court to make this historic decision that persons under 21 cannot be automatically sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. And later on in our conversation, we'll talk about that possibility. But first, let's talk about brain development.
3: Yeah, so this is a decision that's really deeply rooted in science. And what the Supreme Judicial Court did, to their great credit, was they they sent this case down to the Superior Court for the specific purpose of creating a record of what the most up-to-date scientific research shows about brain development in adolescents beyond the age of 17, right? They had already gotten rid of life without parole, for people who were 17 years old or younger at the time of their crimes. And that decision was also based on the science that shows that people in that age group are more impulsive, more prone to risk taking, um, more prone to influence by peers, particularly in situations uh, of emotional arousal, which is when most murders occur. And what they wanted to do was say, "Is is this true for older adolescents, what we call late adolescents, or some people call emerging adults. And so we had a lengthy hearing in superior court, uh, three days, multiple experts, neuroscientists, developmental psychologists, um, uh, uh, recidivism uh, experts who all talked about what does (laughs) the brain, how does the brain function for people in this late adolescent stage, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And the incontrovertible evidence with a robust body of research in this area, and this was not really even contested by the government uh, because it was so clear, shows that these people are prone to the same um, impulsivity, risk-taking, peer influence that younger adolescents are. And it also shows that these people, as Ryan was talking about before, are also have great capacity to change later in life as they mature into full adults.
4: And I just want to point out, Paul, um, that it's not just the Massachusetts uh, court, you know, the liberal Massachusetts court, which is not necessarily true at all. But uh, the United States Supreme Court, in a case in the early part of this century, decided the death penalty cannot be imposed by any state on someone – who is a juvenile as defined in state law um, because there was actual thermal imaging that showed that the brain continues to develop until the point of 23 in the area of the moral reasoning portion of the brain. It was a very powerful concept at the time. And I think the springboard for what you folks have done so masterfully here in Massachusetts.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, and the research, since the Supreme Court said life said first that the death penalty is off the table for, for juveniles and then said mandatory life without parole is off the table for juveniles. since since that time, and we're going back 10, 20 years, there has been a huge body of research that has developed looking at 18, 19, 20 year olds. Some of it has looked at 21, 22 year olds as well. And that research really is powerful and shows, as you said, through, fMRI studies um, and MRI studies, that the brain in the areas in the frontal lobe area where um, we, we make decisions and we, you know, uh, control our impulses, control our emotions, is not fully developed.
1: In terms of the legal theory, the your case, Commonwealth versus Mattis, is based on the Massachusetts Constitution and not the federal constitution. Could you explain for us, please, the difference between the cruel and unusual punishment prohibition of the Eighth Amendment in the federal constitution and the cruel or unusual punishment provision in the Massachusetts constitution? Yeah,
3: so you pointed out a textual difference, right? In Massachusetts, our constitution prevents cruel or unusual uh, punishments, whereas in whereas the Eighth Amendment prevents cruel and unusual punishments. But um, the court has actually never hung its hat on that textual difference. Instead, we have a... Rich, the difference
1: between uh, cruel, cruel and or, unusual versus cruel or unusual. Cruel mm-hmm. or unusual is in the Massachusetts Constitution.
3: Right, right. Uh, th- uh, that textual difference has actually not, not been the key to leading to some different decisions in Massachusetts. Uh, instead...
1: Right, because the courts say... And can mean or, and or can mean <laughs> and. It happens all the time, right. at least in legal, in the <laughs> legal world. Right,
3: right. You would think that that word would mean would make a difference, but it, you would be wrong. You'd be wrong. Um, but we do have a very rich tradition in Massachusetts of our Supreme Judicial Court interpreting its own Constitution mm-hmm. in a way that sometimes in some areas provides greater protections for people than the federal constitution does.
1: As, as do many other state state uh, supreme courts as okay. well. And that, they find their that, constitution has greater rights than the federal constitution, and particularly not surprising in Massachusetts since our constitution came first and the federal government based its constitution on our constitution and all that. Yes. Yeah, I,
2: I was going to say the same thing, Bill. I think there's even more reason in Massachusetts than any I think there's great reason in every state for Supreme Courts to be independently interpreting their own constitutions, particularly as the Supreme Court is more and more unwilling to recognize individual rights, and especially the rights of those accused and convicted of crimes. Um, But in Massachusetts, we have especially a really good reason for doing it because we have the oldest constitution that's still in effect in the world, and it is the Constitution It was around before the U.S. Constitution. So why should we defer to what the Supreme Court has to say about the U.S. Constitution and not give our own state constitution its own effect and give more protections to our citizens here in Massachusetts?
1: We are speaking with Northampton-based criminal defense attorneys Ryan Schiff and Paul Rudolph. They are partners in the newly uh, combined northampton criminal defense law firm of Strayhorn, Ryan and Hoos. We are talking about their case that they just won at the Supreme Judicial Court which holds that persons under the age of 21 cannot be sentenced to life without any possibility of parole. If you committed the crime when you're 18, well, you're not automatically going to die in prison when you're 70, should you make it that long. So, the question now is what will happen to the two more than 200 persons in Massachusetts prisons who are serving life without parole for crimes they committed when they were between the ages of 18 and 21? We'll find out the answer right after this.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
5: We're UMass 5 College Credit Union, and for over 50 years, what has been important to our community has always been important to us. So we offer no interest farm share loans for affordable access to farm fresh produce, We share your commitment to a healthy planet through low-interest solar loans and other green initiatives. And we proudly support the arts and local organizations that do good work, like survival centers and food banks. Together, we all make an impact. Learn more. Visit us online at umass5.coop today.
3: Chronic pain can be very bossy. What do I mean? It tells you what you can or can't do. Sometimes it even has the audacity to keep you from working.
6: I missed almost three weeks
7: of work, and I was no longer able to play tennis. The pain was really debilitating sometimes. I missed Thanksgivings. Abby was ready to put the bossy bad back in her past, and that's
8: when she discovered QC Kinetics and their non-surgical treatments for pain. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in advanced regenerative medicine with tens of thousands of satisfied
3: patients, people who have experienced real lasting relief without drugs and without surgery.
6: It has just been the most life-changing, amazing experience. Not only life-changing, but career-saving. I get to continue to do the career that I love. I'm playing tennis again. Stop
3: letting that joint pain boss you around. Start with a free consultation at QC Kinetics.
9: Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
10: Hello, I'm Patrick Tutweiler, Massachusetts Secretary of Education. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted a lot of routines, including the habit of attending school every day. Even now, students are missing more days of school than before. But school can be a place to heal and grow, to be with friends, to have the support of a whole team of adults. Let's work together to make attendance a priority. School is where kids belong. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Northampton-based criminal defense attorneys Paul Rudolph and Ryan Schiff. They've had more than 20 years' experience, each in the field of criminal defense, not surprisingly. And they are the lawyers who successfully represented... Uh, former juvenile sentenced to life without any possibility of parole whatsoever in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has ruled under the state constitution's cruel prohibition against cruel or unusual punishment that that punishment, life without any possibility of parole, not after 10, not after 20, not after 30, not after 40, not after 50 years, is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional, there has to be the possibility of parole. So, there are over 200 persons serving life without parole sentences who committed murders between the ages of 2018 and 21. What is going to happen to those individuals? What is this parole hearing going to look like? Let's start with Paul Rudolph.
3: Yeah, so what's going to happen to them is they're going to simply get an opportunity an opportunity to go before the parole board and prove to them that they deserve to live outside of the prison walls. Um, Nobody is automatically getting out of prison. Um, and the parole board doesn't just uh, readily let people out. They really demand that people prove to them that they are reformed, that they have a plan in terms of what they're going to do, where they're going to live, uh, how they're going to make sure that they don't commit any future crimes. And um, and people don't get out just like that. They, they really have to show that they are changed people. Um, and we have a, a lot of experience now with this because we had the juveniles who went from being sentenced to life without parole to then having an opportunity to parole. Many of those people have come before the parole board. Many of them have proven to the parole board, not all of them, that they deserve to be released. And they have done extraordinarily well since, since being released. There are very few examples of people who have committed new offenses or violated non-criminal conditions of parole. So um, we are very hopeful that people will have this opportunity to to show that they can live outside the prison walls and return home.
4: And oh, they, sorry, Paul Rudolph, I just want to point out a question was asked of me after we first covered this when the Supreme Judicial Court issued this ruling was, well who else gets to participate in the hearing? I just want to point out that notice must be given by our law here in Massachusetts to the attorney general's office, to the district attorney in which the crime was committed, uh, in the, the region in which uh, the crime was committed, the police chief in the city or town in which the crime was committed, and the victims and the secondary victims, the family members of the victims of the crime. So uh, the parole board's going to hear from those other people.
3: That's right. They're not just given notice. They're given an opportunity to, to be heard. And they often do come to those parole hearings and state their positions, sometimes opposition, but not always. I had a parole hearing where the, the victim's family came and said, we believe in second chances and we've looked at your client's history in prison and we've seen what extraordinary progress he's made and we believe that he deserves a second chance. Was that a homicide? That was It was a murder. That was somebody wow. who was one of the first people who came before the parole board after juvenile life without parole was, was banned. that um, client's been out almost a decade now, has, is living a, an extraordinary, normal law-abiding life. Um, and that's not atypical, but you're absolutely right. Um, and there are crimes that I think are, you asked this question about crimes that are truly horrific, that um, will make it very difficult for the parole board to grant parole for people. Um, but some of those people also reform and show that what they did was a function of their youth, not of some sort of depraved character.
1: I think a lot of people are surprised to learn, and this is nationwide, persons who are released from prison who have been convicted of homicides, in particular murder, have the lowest recidivism Mm -hmm. rate of any persons convicted of crimes. The lowest, and that includes any crime. So my question is back to the hearing. Everyone can testify, but what is the parole, not everyone, but everyone concerned, and Buzz gave the Mm -hmm. uh, list of the statutory persons who need to be notified. Uh, What's the hearing going to look like? What is the parole board actually going to think about it? So can you help us with with that, please, Ryan Schiff? Sure.
2: So now we, you know, not only do we as lawyers have a number of years, you know, decade of experience doing these juvenile parole hearings, but the parole board has a tremendous amount of experience doing this because they do parole hearings for other people serving life sentences, those who have the possibility of parole, like people convicted of second degree murder. So we, these hearings are far more robust than the ones that people have who've been convicted of, or been sentenced to something other than life in prison. They take place before the full parole board. They take place not at the prison, but at the parole board's headquarters. Um, in a hearing room. Um, they have investigators on staff who write up a full report about the person's um, progress in prison, the nature of their offense, everything you could possibly imagine about them. Nothing is held back. I've had cases where they're asking clients to tell them about the meaning of a tattoo on their left shoulder. You know, So they're looking at people's lives in such granular detail to make sure that they're not releasing people from prison who still pose a risk. Um, and one of the remarkable—so it is true that one of the big bases for this decision was susceptibility to risk-taking, bad decision-making during adolescence. But there's another side of it. Adolescence is both an age of great vulnerability, but it's an also an age of great opportunity. And People are much more likely during that age group to commit crimes, including homicides. They're also much more likely to change over th- in the coming years. So one of the things that has not been surprising, if you know the science, and this is contrary to the, the non-scientific prejudices that people used to have in the 1990s, referring to young people as super predators, is that the opposite is true. This isn't people who are, you know, horrible and beyond redemption because of these terrible crimes, but people who can change. So we have 2013, the court says no juvenile life without parole. We have about 80 people who went from life without parole to having parole eligibility. Most of those people, a majority of them, have now been released on prison, and they've done extraordinarily well. Almost Only a couple of them have even gone back to prison. So this is a group that has gone out and not only led regular lives, but also contributed a huge amount to people who feel a real sense of owing something to society because of the crimes they committed. So we're lucky to have them out doing a whole lot to make their communities better places. And now we have 200 more people who, because of this new decision, are now going to be eligible for parole. And the parole board's going to do the same thing. I, we have a good parole board right now. We're lucky to have a good parole board. And um, I have a lot With of… With varied
1: backgrounds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We have persons who are uh, trained in uh, psychology. We have yes. police uh, backgrounds. There, it's a whole range on the parole yeah, board. That's, and and that's we have exactly. a member from Western Massachusetts as well, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it used to be that it tended to be a bunch of former prosecutors and law enforcement people. And those people are still there. But we also have, you know, there's seven members. And we have a member who has a Ph.D. in psychology. We have a member who is a social worker. We have a member who's a former probation officer. You know, people who really bring a broad, you know, we have a former criminal defense lawyer. We have people who are bringing broad experience to this task, and none of them want to make a mistake.
1: But Is it a majority vote?
2: Uh, <laughs> so it depends on the date of the offense. The law changed. I see. And I can't remember what the date is for the cutoff, but for the more recent cases, it's a supermajority. They have to get five.
1: Five or, or seven.
2: Yeah, for the pr- cases that predate that change in the law, it's a majority.
1: So uh, t- tell me this. I think uh, it would, there's a piece of the decision about when persons who committed crimes between the ages, these crimes between the ages of 18 and 21 can be considered for parole. Tell us what the court said, if you would. Let's go back to Paul Rudolph.
3: Um, so there there's a date I believe it's July 25th 2014 when the uh, legis when the legislature enacted a new sentencing statute for juveniles convicted of first-degree murder Um, that was following the decision uh, to bar life without parole for juveniles and um, so people who were convicted prior to that people whose crimes occurred prior to that date those people will be eligible for parole after 15 years. People whose crimes occurred after the date of the juvenile first-degree murder uh, sentencing statute will be subject to that statute, and so when they become eligible par- for parole actually depends on the theory of first-degree murder under which they were convicted. Some of those people will won't actually be eligible for parole until 30 years after the, after their extreme
1: uh, atrocity and cruelty. Correct. Yeah. When will these hearings start?
3: Um, we don't know yet. Uh, we hope soon, because there's people who obviously are well beyond the 15-year parole eligibility date. Um, we we do know that the state public defender's office is working with the parole board to um, get a full list of who is eligible for parole now and when those eligibility dates are, and to begin scheduling those hearings.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, we've been in touch with the parole board. I think that they're going to take this seriously, and they're going to get them as quickly as possible. I'm hoping it's months rather than longer than that.
1: Um, and, and at the hearings, will there be expert testimony from psychologists, or will it be based mostly on prison records? What, just flesh that out a there, little bit there more. There might for us. be
3: expert testimony in some individual cases if if individuals um, utilize experts and, and and rely upon them for testimony. Uh, and there will be probably plenty of hearings without expert testimony, but. Um, really, as Ryan described, delving into the personal the personal history of, of the individual who comes before the parole board.
2: You know one thing that I think is really important for us talking about this and also the parole board is to recognize this isn't just about adolescence. It isn't about law. It's about real human beings who committed terrible crimes and have extraordinary remorse for what they did, but they're human beings.
4: I just want to add: often, when the offense was committed, there was substance abuse involved or mental health issues involved, and and all kinds of stuff which comes up to parole hearing in a pretty complicated and sophisticated manner.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the parole board looks at the crime itself and all of the circumstances of the crime, as well as the person's post-crime history.
1: Northampton criminal defense attorneys Paul Rudolph, Ryan Schiff. Thank you both so very much. Congratulations, and thanks for bringing more justice into our world. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for having us. We'll be right back with Black in the Valley.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Wilbraham police have identified the suspect who allegedly shot a police officer Saturday night. 53-year-old Michael Orteg is being charged with assault with intent to murder and assault with a dangerous weapon. The shooting took place at around 8.40 p.m. after officers were called to a home on Old Carriage Drive in Wilbraham. When police got to the location, they began to exchange gunfire with the suspect inside the home who had barricaded himself there for several hours. An officer, a 29-year-old man, was struck by gunfire during the standoff and taken to the hospital with serious injuries and is in stable condition. While the Amherst School District searches for a new superintendent, the elementary school could be facing a half a million dollars in budget cuts in the next fiscal year. The school system needs a budget of nearly $26 just to keep existing services intact, which is a 5% increase over this year's budget, according to the school's projections. The town council, however, has requested the schools do not exceed a 3% budget increase, leaving them with the $500,000 gap. The end of emergency relief funds from the federal government, inflation, employee salary increases, and necessary work contracted to outside agencies were some of the reasons cited by the interim finance manager for the increase in spending. A public hearing on the school budget is scheduled for February 13th. Camp Howe in Goshen will no longer be affiliated with 4-H after UMass opted against renewing a memorandum of understanding. Officials say the decision was based on a shortage of staffing at UMass Extension and its lack of involvement in the summer camp since the 90s. Camp Howe is the longest-running 4-H summer program in Massachusetts and about to begin its 96th year.
8: For today's sunshine this morning then increasing clouds this afternoon highs 34 to 38 tonight it'll be mostly cloudy overnight lows 22 to 26 and the outlook for Tuesday cloudy with rain and snow in the afternoon highs in the mid and upper 30s. I'm 22 new storm team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
4: Reading is one of life's great pleasures having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. You love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Are
2: you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub and Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable
9: price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing Beer. Visit hangerpub.com slash events to book today.
11: Hi, I'm Henry Winkler. My eyes are very important to me. My eyes connect me with things I love. I loved my late father-in-law dearly. He always lit up a room, but his vision dimmed with age. He had age-related macular degeneration, or AMD. And since partnering with Appelis, I've learned there's an advanced form of the disease called geographic atrophy, or GA. His struggle with vision loss made me want to help others know about GA's warning signs. For some, straight lines seem wavy
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: And this is our Black in the Valley segment with African American Studies professor at the University of Massachusetts. I'm Akar Shabazz. Well, we are having a little technical difficulty. Um, is the microphone on? I don't know. Um, so, there we go the microphone on. Let's try again. Welcome to Black in the Valley with our second host, African American Studies professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Milkar Shabazz, and who has with him and us today a very special guest. So I leave the pleasure and honor of the introduction to you, Professor.
10: I'm volunteering on and off campus, and uh, particularly um, he's been a part of uh, various initiatives uh, right here in Amherst and in Amherst College that uh, we hope to, uh, to talk a bit about today. But I'll just stop there to say welcome, uh, Stefan, to uh, the Black in the Valley space.
12: Oh, thank you so much for having me here, and thank you all for this, this great service to the, to the community.
10: Well, thank you. We're very interested in um, the uh, both Bill and I have are are and have been a part in past tense in my case of local uh, commission committee efforts by our town government to um, uh, develop a reparations program uh, that addresses the legacy of slavery, the history of harm against uh, the African American community. Um, in in our respective cities in Amherst in Northampton, Bill is serving on it right now as we speak. And um, in my case, we completed the report uh, of the African Heritage Reparations Assembly chaired by uh, Michelle Miller, and that report is now in the process of being uh, of going into an implementation phase. Uh, so you know, we we really invite you to kind of come in and and give us your perspective. You've written on reparations, you've been an uh, astute observer of this developing movement at the local and state level. Give us a bit of your your perspective on what's happening.
12: No, um, again I have to thank you for the service to the community. I think uh, Amherst is leading the way um, for a lot of municipalities that are trying to figure out how to deal with this historic issue of reparations and so uh, Amherst, of course, got inspiration from Evanston, uh, Illinois. Uh, and what we're seeing is is uh, there's a, a fire that's 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 expanding throughout the United States. Uh, so you see, uh, my good friend Cheryl Grills out in California uh, is heading up the reparations commission for the state. Uh, and so there's <clears throat> real traction uh, there's real uh, interest in the state and local uh, local levels to find out what could be done in the way of, of reparations and so uh, so so happy to see this come to to fruition and uh, um, and if I'm being honest, I think this is probably going to be the best approach towards the, the issue of reparations is this localized, Localized approach.
10: I want to get Bill in on this in a second, but I just want to point out for our audience that um, the New England Public Media is presenting a screening of the cost of inheritance. It's a screening and discussion at Springfield College in Appleton Auditorium at the Fuller Arts Center uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's Uh, There is a link that we'll make available through WHMP or uh, where you can uh, RSVP that you're coming. And uh, I had a chance to watch a preview, pre-screen this just last night. And and it really makes the point that uh, it says, one of the people in it says explicitly that, you know, the harm happened locally. We've got to have things to address the harm locally, and uh, it, it's really a compelling uh, documentary. It's less than an hour, so it'll leave ample time. People can screen it, and then there's ample time for people to uh, to discuss it. You're one of the panelists, along with uh, Brianna uh, Cuffy, from um, an author based in Annapolis, Maryland. I see um, uh, Lottie Dula, a retired financial strategist uh, who's uh, co-founded Reparations for Slavery. Uh, you're, uh, you're and my colleague at Amherst College, Dr. Gillesio Jolly um, uh, in Black Studies there at Amherst College is uh, is also on it. And you yourself uh, are on it, as well as our, our beloved Michelle Miller from here in Amherst is on it. So I just wanted to put that in. But, uh, but Bill, come on in and, uh, and, and, and
1: join this. Tell us the name of the film again, the title, please.
10: Thank you. The Cost of Inheritance.
1: And the film, which I've seen. Um, is actually very direct. Uh, persons who were enslavers and people whose ancestors were enslaved. It's really direct. It's very poignant. I really recommend this film. I would like to know from you, if I might, uh, uh, Professor Bradley, uh, about something that uh, Professor uh, Shabazz, as a member of the commission uh, in Amherst, and as a member of the African American Assembly in Amherst, said, which was, you really do reparations, it's going to take a massive federal uh, commitment, which we don't have. And we all seem to come back to, given that it's not going to happen on a federal level, things have to happen locally. But what can happen locally as a practical matter, in terms of whatever kind of program or payments or expenses might be involved, is a fraction of what might be needed in order to actually address reparations, and I'm wondering if you could try to resolve that uh, i think almost unresolvable issue for us, but i'd appreciate your thoughts
12: yeah no um, <laughs> the problem is 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 greatly appreciated the solutions are are less forthcoming see here's the the issue is, is you know, if you look at all of the, the data, the Pew reports, uh, everybody can agree that, you know, that black people have been harmed uh, and um, that people who are descendants of the enslaved, uh, people who have lived through Jim Crow have been harmed. Everybody can agree on that. Um, uh, white, black, old, young, uh, rich and poor. But the problem comes at a federal level of what to do about it. And that's why this localized effort has seemed to be the most effective uh, in, 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 in contemporary times. It's not entirely surprising to me, though, because uh, this is how movement works. And so when we talk about black people, when we talk about the experience of, of, of black people in this nation, it's always worked by way of, of, of groundwork. Uh, that uh, this idea that that local people uh, would mobilize, would organize, uh, and affect change in a local way, and then eventually uh, this would catch on, uh, either by you know by way of state, region, uh, and then eventually the federal government recognizes this. So when we when we looked at at other issues concerning the Black experience, for instance, voting. Um, you had people who were organizing around the issue in in smaller areas, voting or desegregation. You think about a Birmingham, you think about a Montgomery, uh, you think about Selma. These are small places that, that that nobody really knows about, but they were able to have some kind of uh, uh, popularity, some kind of to, to they were able to get some kind of acclaim for their 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 localized work. To make it a federal issue, uh, and so that's when you get the sixty five Voting Rights Act because of these localized efforts. so I wouldn't I wouldn't um, feel di- uh, you know uh, f- uh, feel too disappointed about the the localized effort. I think there's still a great deal of hope. Uh, um, but it's going to take it's going to take uh, a lot of localized efforts
1: uh, to to move forward. I'd like to ask you both, are you actually optimistic about a burgeoning reparations movement and is that how you refer to it? Is a reparations movement? Let me start you with you. Go, go ahead, Professor, go ahead.
10: No, no, please. Uh, well,
12: in. you know, I'm a historian, so rarely ever am I optimistic about that. Uh, <laughs> <Spanish. laughs> So so optimism is not typically a word I use when 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 talking about these great historical issues. Um, but I'll say this. Um, uh, I see the power of people and I do believe in the power of people. And so what we saw with the this particular documentary uh, was a, a white family who 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 saw a reason to do right. and. Uh, you know there are people who who decide to do right, and they decide to do it scared, which is one of the things that comes comes through uh, on the documentary. Um, uh, they didn't know what was going to happen, and so there is there is there is a bit of hope in that way. I'll say this: that the black people have been pressing for reparations since enslavement ended, uh, and 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 by the way, before enslavement ended, uh, black people have been pushing for reparations. So. So am I optimistic? Um, I don't know if I would use that word. Am I faithful uh, to the idea that that good people will always move forward? Yes, I am. And uh, and I'll be with those good people.
10: And and I would jump in along the same lines as what Stefan has just said. You know what, what does give me some glimmer of, of optimism to use that word or hope is uh people like michelle miller it's, it's people like matthew and corin uh andrews it's uh it's even people on our uh town council that have uh uh consistently been voting in favor of uh you know reserving two million dollars uh of to $2 million dollars for uh, a reparations fund and and have been uh, and are looking now to engage some of the elements of the plan that we've put forward and to and to move toward implementation and actual disbursement of some kinds of funding this year in 2024 it seems people like lynn grismer you know i used to have the view of Amherst that the people there were all too smart to do anything good mm. but uh, but i'm seeing them start to come around and actually uh, use those smarts to do something good
1: We are speaking with UMass Professor uh, Amakar Shabazz and Amherst College Professor Stefan Bradley. We are gonna continue our Black in the Valley segment, reparations here in the Valley or not, right after this.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
13: Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays
7: to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union,
13: federally insured by NCUA what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
1: the co-op kitchen is always cooking get ready to go meals sandwiches salads pizza burritos order sandwich platters or anything platters for lunchtime party time or anytime you like to bake the co-op has all your baking essentials like ground up flour and grains stone milled in Holyoke. put a little oven in the oven bread and brownies cakes and cookies let your creative
14: inspiration flow
13: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
14: Do you think the Amish sleep in horse-drawn beds? Whatever beds they sleep in, the Amish build beds that are simply beautiful, with subtle arts and crafts touches. There's an old Amish proverb, the most important things in your home are people. Maybe so, but those people need a place to sleep. Amish made beds from Talon Furniture. So good looking, so well built, Talon has Amish beds ready for delivery, or order in the wood and finish you want. Then, we have beds made in Vermont that have all of the craftsmanship of Amish beds, made from cherry or maple, but these Vermont-built beds are just a touch more elegant in their design. How about an upholstered bed? An upholstered headboard and frame. It's a really nice look and feel. Talon Furniture's upholstered beds come in dozens of fabrics and leathers. In between today and tomorrow, there will be time in bed. Spending that time in a nice bed just feels good. Come to Talent Furniture, the little bed boutique just down the hill from Amherst College. You're listening to Talk
0: the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our Black in the Valley segment with Professor Amokar Shabazz from UMass Amherst and Professor Stefan Bradley from Amherst College. We were talking while we were off air about upcoming, it's February, uh, Black History Month, and I think that really dovetails uh, well with what we were talking about, which is uh, reparations and what actually can be done to repair the evil of slavery and its aftermath. So I'd appreciate your perspective on that, and in particular, whether Black History Month has has been a part of and fits into this idea of reparations. Should we start with you, uh, Professor Bradley? Sure, Uh, of
12: course, Uh, Black History Month uh, itself was a matter of movement, Uh, and so it it, it wasn't always something. uh, We saw uh, Carter G. Woodson have the Negro History Week, but then to expand, you saw young people, you saw uh, uh, other people, including celebrities and, and others, push towards this idea of Black History Month. During this month, we spend the time learning about some of the past harms that 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 uh, have befallen Black people. Uh, but this idea is 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 powerful in the sense of healing. That is, uh, not all of Black history is 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 about pain and suffering. Uh, much of our history is about is about moving forward in spite of uh there's joy there's there's uh happiness that's that's to be told and so i think reparations is much a part of that idea of healing uh a part of that idea of uh eventually understanding that 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 uh we are moving forward from what was
10: you know doc i'd like you to expand a little bit too specifically some of this history of amherst particularly amherst college You know, um, Anika Lopes and Deborah Bridges with Ancestral Bridges have done such great work bringing forth and encountering the historic erasure of black people in this little New England town we call Amherst. But uh, how about Amherst College? How have you been working on some of these issues?
12: Yeah, well, so... Uh, powerfully, uh, students have taken up um, taken up this issue, and so there have been young people who have gone into the archives, and, and our archives department is is very special. Have gone into the archives and seen where uh, Amherst College itself has had relationship to uh, enslavement in the area uh, and um, with families in particular, and so. Ah, uh, that kind of work is necessary. Uh, so, so I just like to say this: that everybody will have to be involved for this reparations to work. So, the nerds are going to have to be in the archives. The the movement people are going to have to be in the streets. The uh, so-called allies are going to have to 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 not be distracted by anything else. It's going to take all of us to push forward with this idea of
1: reparations. Hundred percent. Wow, that was. That was amazing, that was amazing. I wanna thank you both so very much, Professor Amakosh Shabazz from UMass Amherst and Professor Stefan Bradley from Amherst College. Historians both, your work is invaluable. Your contribution on this show is really appreciated. Thank you both so very much. Thank you.
10: You're welcome.
13: This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lunderberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lunderberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com
8: find local news and local talk for the
9: valley.
5: We are talking about the issue of free community college, but it cannot be on the back of the workforce because it will be completely unworkable for them and certainly actually not fair for students either. If we believe in the promise of community college, which I do with all my heart, we want these institutions to remain excellent.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, 1015 and 1400 WHMP. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD Two Turners Falls WHMP.com, dot com a Northampton Radio Group station. It's
13: ten o'clock.
4: Boston. It is really worthy of our attention during these days when we are talking not just about uh, democracy being uh, at best challenged, maybe that's a soft way to put it, but also on the rise of uh, fascism in so many different ways that we're exhibiting, not just in this country, but around the world. It is definitely a uh, time to look back and not... So Long Ago and Not So Far Away, which is exactly the name of this exhibition, Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. It's a chilling title for an exhibition, but it's an important and necessary one. We are lucky to have the executive producer of that exhibition, Luis Ferriero. He's the director of Musealia, and they have put together, well, this these curators from all around the world who are known as international authorities on the history of Auschwitz and the Holocaust to come up with an exhibit that I think all of us should see. Thank you so much for joining us, Luis.
15: Thank you so much for hosting me. It's a real pleasure.
4: So could you tell us about Auschwitz not long ago, not far away? How did it happen? Why did it happen?
15: Well, actually the uh, Musealia, we are a Spanish company, we create exhibitions and the reason why we had the idea of, of creating an exhibition about us, which was, um, well, because we were a family company, so it was my parents, my brother and I, and in 2007, my brother died of a sudden heart attack. And of course that was devastating for the family and for the company. And then I was given one year later this book uh, for my birthday, actually, um, Manning uh, in Search of Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I didn't want to read it in the beginning. But that summer, uh, I started to to read it. And of course, it's a story of uh, of Viktor uh, Frankl, who was a survivor of uh, different concentration camps and extermination camps included out. So he explains the psychological experience of somebody who is sent to these kind of camps. And he does it almost from a very uh, scientific way, his psychology. So he's taking a lot of space and a lot of distance and he's just sort of analyzing almost in a forensic way, the experience. And I was profoundly touched by it. And of course, um, because we were doing exhibitions, you know, the first reaction when you, I, I had heard of course about the Holocaust and about Auschwitz, but when you go into uh, a deep layer, there was this sort of moral um, imperative to to do something about it. And uh, that's a little bit the the initial uh, spark of the of the exhibition. And then, of course, it is a unique opportunity because it's an exhibition co-produced for the first time, very likely for the last time with the Altebruch in our State Museum. So we display more than 700 original artifacts. Most of them come from their archives. First time in history that a large collection goes out of the memorial um, and and they bring this authenticity and you know it, it's absolutely um, I cannot really find the words to describe what these artifacts tell us because the most important thing actually it's not what we see in the artifacts but what we know what we can learn uh, about those artifacts and um, and that is what we try to do. We try to explain the story of Auschwitz both as a as a site, as a as a location, physical location. What happened in that particular place, and the process of extermination, and um, what was you know the the existence of the camp. But of course, we also explore it from a more philosophical way. Um, how was it possible to happen and uh, we explore the road to Auschwitz we don't get really into the camp itself until almost halfway through the exhibition and we we, we explain how in a society which was the most technologically so uh, culturally advanced of its time such a genocide which is a cultural thing could could uh, could happen um uh, so we explore human barbarism of course and um and and all of that together is what I think makes the exhibition a, uh, a unique opportunity and also a a, yeah, a chance for us to understand how Auschwitz could come to existence.
4: Well, I want to talk about that, Luis Ferreiro. It, at Auschwitz, not long ago, and not far away, this exhibition, which is debuting in Boston, we want to hear about how people can find out about it, but I want to go back to the fact that it is, what I've read about it, it's a, called an immersive view of the history. And you mentioned these 700 uh, artifacts, um, and, and I, I guess I want to hear about what's the nature of those artifacts, and what do you mean by an immersive view of the history of Auschwitz?
15: But to be completely honest, I don't think we, we use the term immersive. Uh, it might, of course, appear in some reviews or, or some other people, but we don't internally use that term in our website or, or especially when we speak about the exhibition because let's be very very clear about this nothing of what we can do in the exhibition can get to nothing even nearer near to what those that were in the camp had to experience so we are not trying to replicate any experience we're not trying to make people feel what those who were in Auschwitz could um uh, suffer because that is simply impossible, you know, so, so we don't pretend to do that if, and I don't really think we use the word immersive, but it is actually, uh, what I would really love the exhibition to achieve is for people to understand how societies can turn into, into genocide and, and embrace genocide and to learn the red flags, uh, so that when, wing changes as the, the song goes. We are ready to also stand up for what is what is right. And also let's, you know, the exhibition, not, not the exhibition, but Auschwitz, the fact that Auschwitz happened. I will now quote Primo Levi, well-known survivor, because probably there's no better words to say. And he, he said, Auschwitz happened and therefore it can happen again. And that is the core of what we have to say whatever the exhibition, the exhibition explained from an intellectual point of view, how it was possible. We tried to explain how it was possible, um, but I think probably the core message is with the testimonies that we have from survivors. And they clearly tell us, uh, like like I said, Primo Levi or Hannah Arendt, a different kind of survivor, but she said, one, once you introduce in the, world, in the world of things that exist, a word, an event, a deed, the possibilities of it it repeating itself grow exponentially and and that is, uh, so put it in a different way, we don't have an excuse. We cannot blame ignorance because this happened not long ago and not very far away metaphorically speaking from our generation, right? So uh, we cannot, we can just not say that we didn't know. We do know where certain ideologies of hatred can take us to. We know where they lead to, and therefore um, we can, you know, we don't have any, we don't have that alibi. And the exhibition is also a testimony to to that.
4: Uh, Luis Ferrero, I know firsthand how important it is to see original artifacts. I I, come from a, my great-grandfather, who of course I never met. He was killed in a gas chamber. Um, I, When I went to Vienna, I looked at the a museum. There was an exhibition of Kristallnacht, and I was able to see mm-hmm. the shoes and the actual artifacts from that. And even though I thought I understood, it brings you to a different level. When I'm reading about Auschwitz not long ago, not far away, things like gas masks or children's dolls or prisoners' clothing mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, you know, suitcases and the like. These artifacts bring us to a point where we realize, oh, these were real people with real lives, and um, and their possessions are all that survived of the 1.1 million people who were exterminated. And I, I, you used that mm-hmm. word earlier; it's a it's a chilling word. When how is it that you talk to these people who are survivors, and? Well, why don't you tell us about what they say and how they reflect on
15: an unthinkable past? Well, I have been lucky enough. I have to say also and well, I'm very sorry to hear about uh, about your your story and, and and your relative but um but certainly, I had the the chance basically because we work with the museum and we work with uh, i Yeah, maybe some people will say I'm not uh, the right person to say but I believe uh, our historians and curators are probably one of the best teams in this subject matter and they were able of course to to bring this incredible knowledge and to give us access to uh, some of the survivors that are still with us and uh, we were able to explain the project and to share the narrative and to uh, in many ways uh, consult with them about uh, about the general concept of the of the exhibition and I have to say that I have only found uh, support and encouraging words from them i I felt always when I am with them that uh, they have these especially as the years go by they have this necessity to tell and uh, they somehow see the exhibition in a way as uh, as a an extension of this work of spreading the word of what happened of telling what happened of making people aware and of course you can do this by books by lectures by um, you know movies by so many things and museums and um, and that has been the general um, message I have uh, I have from them that basically this is an important exhibition, uh, this is an important message, and uh, the, there is this need to spread the the word. And uh, it's very special, you know, I, I, I always feel honestly very stupid when I have to tour a survivor through the exhibition, because how can I tell anybody that has been in that particular situation, a survivor, the story of Auschwitz, uh, and um, but they always they always um, they always listen and they understand that of course their experience, their knowledge is 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 a real one. We work with historians, with uh, educational experts that need to get all of that uh, experience and put it together in a in 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 an exhibition narrative, in educational material, um, and they have always been very very supportive, and that is also something, one of the most important things for me in the entire project was to be able to uh, to share moments with the survivors. Uh, it's really uh, unique.
1: I would like to know whether you think that this exhibit resonates today as much or more or less than it would have 5 or 10 or 20 years ago. And I ask this in particular because this weekend I saw this is just extraordinary play at the local Northampton Academy of Music called the uh, 2.5 Minute Ride, and it's a story told by one person, one actor, playing numerous parts, telling a story that includes a visit to an amusement park with her elderly father, uh, a family wedding with all of its usual (laughs) intrigue, and Mm -hmm. her visit with her father to where he had been, Auschwitz. It is Mm. extremely powerful. Listeners who are hearing this, Mm. do yourself a favor. Go get a ticket and go see the 2.5-minute ride at the Academy of Music this weekend. Um, But I looked at the audience, I said, by and large, an older audience whose families may have experienced or at least experienced World War II directly or indirectly. And I'm wondering whether you think Auschwitz as a paradigm of hatred and anti-Semitism and racism and fascism, whether it still
15: holds that power. It's very interesting because, of course, when when I read the book, the first thing was this need to create an exhibition. And, of course, the second question I ask myself is, how come it has never been done before? Because I found it so obvious and so necessary that I could not really understand why it had not been done before. And I was I, I felt, and this was a long story. I mean, the, the, the idea was when I read this book in 2008, summer of 2008 um, or nine, and the exhibition didn't open until 2017. So there, it was a long, long way and it was difficult and it was unclear whether it was gonna be possible to do it or not. And I always felt this this sense of urgency, because I always felt like we need, we really need it now. I mean, we we cannot wait to tell this story in, a, in an exhibition. But since 2017, uh, I have realized in many ways that this exhibition probably I feel is as necessary, as important. It would have been 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and, and today, or probably it will be important in 20 years. Of course now we are in a situation where we see anti Semitism in a rise in a in a in a complete in a way that is devastating also for survivors to see how this is coming again. And and we live in a very, very complex world. But um, I I don't what I think is that nowadays is as important. I don't think there will be any time that is more important than than, than now. But I also think that it's probably as important as as always uh, i think if you want to understand fully the, the human condition you cannot leave the dark sides of of our own species aside you have to face them and um to have that complete knowledge you 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 have to look into the, it's not possible to have a full understanding of our own society without facing the death camps of the Second World War and the, the Holocaust.
4: We are talking to Luis Ferreiro. He is the director of Musealia, which is a private company that has produced this rather extraordinary exhibition, Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away. Uh, it is you can, you can find it at the Castle at Park Plaza from March 15th. September 2nd. It's an extraordinary exhibition. We're going to continue our conversation with Louise right after this.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: You can make the decision right now to get lasting relief from that awful joint pain for 2024. Don't go another year compromising because of that pain in your knees or shoulder. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative, non-surgical pain relief. Your body has what it needs to restore and repair that damaged joint tissue, and QC Kinetics can make it happen. No drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. The future of pain treatments has arrived, and QC Kinetics has tens of thousands of satisfied patients all over America. People with back pain, hip pain, any pain associated with arthritis or an injury. This is not a Band-Aid. This is a revolutionary treatment that can get you moving again. Get your life back. And listen, it's non-surgical. If this is the year you decide to fight back against that pain, take the first step now and call QC Kinetics for a free consultation today. Call 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
13: We have an inventory overload at Country Hyundai with over 300 vehicles that have to go. What's that mean for you? Savings of up to $16,000 on 2023 Ionics. 0% financing for up to 36 months on 2024
2: Tucsons. And leases starting at just $249 a month on 2024 Elantras. We have a car for everybody, so click CountryHyundai.com to buy online or just come see us on King Street in Northampton. Country Hyundai, you're going to love it here. See dealer
0: for details or calling 844 Attorney Joe Cordell. Business owners and professionals face special challenges in divorce court. In addition to everything else going on, they have to contend with allegations that they are earning more than they are, coupled with claims on their business or practice itself. Clients with assets depend on their divorce lawyer skills in these matters. And that's why it's so important to hire someone that has those skills. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston area attorneys. 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
4: We are back continuing... Not only an interesting, fascinating conversation, but a really important conversation with executive producer Luis Frero of uh, of Auschwitz. Not long ago, not far away, it is debuting in Boston on March fifteenth to September second. It's going to run at the Castle at Park Plaza, and it sounds like um, a profoundly important experience for people to have to understand. Um, Not just the dread of Auschwitz, but it's contemporary application to what we're watching. So, Louise, many of us are struck right now by our astonishment at hearing people who are sort of drawn to fascism after we, of an older generation, uh, grew up disdaining everything about fascism. Why do you think this is relevant to today's
15: society? Well, uh, I think it's very important because, well, everybody that goes into the exhibition goes with a backpack. So we all have our own experience. We all live in a society. I am from Spain, from Europe. The exhibition is going to be in Boston. Uh, it, it is still in the world. So we have been to Sweden. We have been, to, uh, we have been in Spain. Um, and I think that nowadays it's, it's m- probably more relevant than, than ever to understand how Auschwitz uh, could exist, and especially what does it mean for us today? And as I said before, I think that understanding how societies can turn and embrace genocide, <coughs> being genocide a um, <clears throat> a thing that is, you know, one of the problems we have with Holocaust education is that most people sometimes the that don't that have not been taught about this in particular, you know, they, it's very easy to blame it to one particular man, to Hitler, or a small group of people, the, the 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 Nazis. But the truth is, and this is shown in the exhibition, that the genocide would have not been possible without the complicity, active or passive, from a, a vast majority of the society, European society. Um, so in that regard, understanding how that was possible, I think it's um, it's, it's a very important thing for for ourselves today in our own societies uh, as I said um, nobody in, in 2023 20, uh, 10 years before Hitler came to power if they would have been told that uh, this would have would happen and that there would exist death camps or extermination camps uh, um, probably they, they they would have laughed right so um, you know as I said before, Primo Levi, it happened, it can happen before, and it is important that we are aware how it happened I, I so th- that we can prevent it.
4: Yeah, I think we all have to remember that, uh, well, you're of Spanish origin, Francisco Franco, was not that long ago, I think it was in the 60s, and Salazar, Antonio Salazar, these were dictators, these were fascists in Portugal and Spain, who were, I think, Salazar was up in the late 70s. Uh, late sixties, I think, oh, or maybe 70s. early seventies. Yeah,
15: the, the, correct. Democracy in Spain is from some 78, I think. Uh, so it, we are, uh, in that sense, of course, uh, a very young, uh, democracy. Um, so, so yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, and even nowadays there are, uh, societies, there are countries which in a different form of total, total totalitarianism have, um, you know, societies that are not ruled by the rule of law and where uh, freedom is so we, we take by granted many things that we are able to um, to have but that certainly if we look just back into history literally just as you were saying uh, they were not the most common thing so I think it's also an opportunity to uh, to look into our democracies to uh, to make them stronger and to uh, and to have mechanisms to detect when things are going the wrong way and to stand up for um, for things that uh, that are important.
4: In the little time that we have left, uh, Luis Ferrero, could you tell us about these curators that uh, are international authorities on the history of Auschwitz and the history of the Holocaust? Um, who are they? Where do they come from?
15: So, and it's a pleasure for me because uh, very quickly, but uh, we have our... Uh, Besides the team of historians and researchers from the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, we have an independent curatorial team which is led by Robert Jan van Peld, who is uh, an incredible um, you know, uh, expert in in the story of Auschwitz and of the Holocaust. We have Michael Goerenbaum, um who has been involved in the most important holocaust museums uh, around the world and continues to work with them uh, on, an, on a regular basis. We have Paul Sammons. Paul Sammons is one of the m- most important educational uh, experts in in this particular field. Miriam um, Greenbaum and Jamel um, so the entire team is people who have dedicated most of their uh, life to the study of the holocaust and to uh, find the best ways to uh teach them so uh I, it has been an absolute pleasure and privilege to work with them and it's one of the um yeah one of the best things also for me in this project is to have been able to share and to create together with uh with such people
1: well in that regard what I'd like to know is notwithstanding your knowledge and your deep understanding of the Holocaust and Auschwitz, which of course was many prison camps, not many death camps, not just one, is has putting this exhibit together, working with the experts you just told us about, your personal immersion in this horrifying history, has it changed you in any way that you didn't expect?
15: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the moments I remember the most was actually, uh, reading a, a book of, uh, um, it was Primo and I was in, in my hometown in San Sebastian and yeah, it was a chapter about the, the terrible conditions of cold. And I remember, and he was going on about not only the cold, but about this, this situation where they, they didn't know what to expect. There was no, there was no law one thing you did one thing one day and that. You know that could mean that you had breath. You did the same thing the other day. It meant that you were dead and you were going to be shot. So there was, there was no way to to fully understand the nature of uh, of uh, you know of the law in the camp and and the attitude of the uh, SS who were guarding the, the the camp. So this notion of, of uh, being of life being in unpredictable of, of what to do was so frightening. And I I remember being in my bed. And feeling so grateful to have a warm place, a warm bed, food in the fridge, and to wake up in a country where there is the law, and you can, you know, you you can abide by understanding the law and, and knowing what you can do and what you cannot do, uh, and and to have rights. Uh, and I, I, you know, I remember that, and every very often I remember that feeling of being warm in a bed we don't know how lucky we are there you go uh,
4: it's just so poignant thank you so it's so important that people understand that they can have a similar epiphany um by going and seeing this exhibition it's auschwitz not long ago not far away where and when and how do we get tickets
15: Yes, so I will urge everybody because sellouts are expected. Uh, pre-sales are are going very strong. Some days and slots are already out and uh, and gone. So I would, you know, suggest everybody encourage them to plan their visit today to go to the exhibition.com. They can book tickets there. They can get practical info about the location and frequently asked questions. Also about schools, we have a lot, a lot of schools coming into the exhibition. It's going to be only for a short, very short period of time in Boston. I don't think we're going back to the East Coast. Uh, so it's also not only Boston, but anybody in the East Coast that want to see the exhibit. It's a unique opportunity. I encourage everybody to uh, to take this step of, uh, of facing Auschwitz.
4: It's going to open at March 15th. Uh, Luis Ferrero, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an important time. To look at this exhibition. Thank you for putting it together. Thank your company for doing that. It is Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, March 15th, December 2nd, Castle at Park Plaza. Make sure you go see this. We'll be right back with Megan inn.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Wilbraham police have identified the suspect who allegedly shot a police officer Saturday night. 53-year-old Michael Orteg is being charged with assault with intent to murder and assault with a dangerous weapon. The shooting took place at around 8.40 p.m. after officers were called to a home on Old Carriage Drive in Wilbraham. When police got to the location, they began to exchange gunfire with the suspect inside the home who had barricaded himself there for several hours. An officer, a 29-year-old man, was struck by gunfire during the standoff and taken to the hospital with serious injuries and is in stable condition. While the Amherst School District searches for a new superintendent, the elementary school could be facing a half a million dollars in budget cuts in the next fiscal year. The school system needs a budget of nearly $26 million just to keep existing services intact, which is a 5% increase over this year's budget, according to the school's projections. The town council, however, has requested the schools do not exceed a 3% budget increase, leaving them with the $500,000 gap. The end of emergency relief funds from the federal government, inflation, employee salary increases, and necessary work contracted to Outside agencies were some of the reasons cited by the interim finance manager for the increase in spending. A public hearing on the school budget is scheduled for February 13th. Camp Howe in Goshen will no longer be affiliated with 4 H after UMass opted against renewing a memorandum of understanding. Officials say the decision was based on a shortage of staffing at UMass Extension and its lack of involvement in the summer camp since the 90s. Camp Howe is the longest running 4 H summer program in Massachusetts and about to begin its 96th year.
8: For today's sunshine this morning then increasing clouds this afternoon. Highs 34 to 38. Tonight it'll be mostly cloudy. Overnight lows 22 to 26. And the outlook for Tuesday, cloudy with rain and snow in the afternoon. Highs in the mid and upper 30s. I'm 22 new storm team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
9: Call 800-385-9302 now. Drivers who are covered will not have to pay for covered repairs again. This protection plan is at an all-time low. Additionally, drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Call us for your free quick quote today. 800-385-9302. That's 800-385-9302. What do you have to lose? Call 800-385-9302. Again, 800-385-9302. Every time I switch on the news or read the paper, I feel a sense of panic. You know the feeling. Fear and uncertainty are gripping the world. Huge economic storms loom, and if you're anything like me, your options are running out fast. One thing I did do a while ago, which I'm really pleased with, was opening a gold IRA account with Noble Gold Investments. I had some old 401ks I rolled over, so it didn't cost me a bean. And since doing it, gold has reached an all-time high. Noble Gold Investments were brilliant. Their experts ran through my options and walked me through the whole thing. Gold. Gold has seen off wars and disasters for thousands of years, so I feel pretty confident that I'll be okay now. Start your journey to financial security with Noble Gold Investments IRA Services, and you can claim a free 3-ounce silver American virtue coin. Just use the promo code GOLD. Go to NobleGoldInvestments.com now. NobleGoldInvestments.com. Best performance may not be indicative of future results. Investing in precious metals, including gold, involves risks. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
4: It is Monday and we are back. It is our Writer's Block segment. Megan Zinn, I really missed you. We had Monday off last week. I know we
6: did. Well, now we're back to no more Monday breaks. Um, we got to go for a while. Um, My guest today is John Clinch, the author of The General and Julia. Welcome, John.
16: Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate your having me here.
6: It's a pleasure. Um, so John, John, John Clinch is the author of um, the acclaimed novels Finn, Kings of the Earth, the st- Thief of Auschwitz, Belzoni Dreams of Egypt and Marley um, and, and as well as his new book which came out in November, The General and Julia. John <laughs> will be at Odyssey Bookshop next Wednesday to talk about the G- General and Julia, uh, January 31st at 7pm and you can find out more on their website odysseybks.com well, uh, John, um, give us a short description um, a little um, elevator pitch <laughs> description on um, the General <laughs> And Julia,
16: The General and Julia, thanks for asking, is uh, basically a uh, an exploration of the character and the last days of uh, Ulysses Grant's life on this earth. Uh, he had had uh, a life that was uh, at least as dramatic mm-hmm. as what we think about his younger years and his last in his last few years., uh, he had fallen on hard times he had nothing left to give his family if he died he was on the verge of dying mm-hmm. and and, uh, and he set out to write his memoirs in order to leave something something of value behind for his wife and children and uh, that's the heart of the story
6: yeah so read us a, read us a short selection of the general and julia uh,
16: this this part that i've chosen happens in uh, or during the civil war mm-hmm. and uh, here we go he is uh, he's home with a family and he leaves to go about his business as a general he goes by steamboat from st louis to cairo and once in cairo he boards a train for the two-day journey to chattanooga everyone knows him but no one recognizes him for he travels as always in his natural anonymous state he's smaller than his reputation smaller and less ornamented and easier to miss slouched in his seat and barreling toward nashville in the twilight He is dressed as plainly as any rough-knuckled tradesman. He wears cotton trousers, of faded blue, and a pale gray checked shirt minus the collar. His blue overcoat is folded on the seat to his right. Atop his head is a cap of white wool knitted for him by Nellie, his daughter, as a Christmas present drawn down close to his eyebrows. He bears, in other words, no indication of his line of work, much less his rank. Only the set of his jaw might indicate that there is reason to pay him particular mind. The set of his jaw and the sparkle of his eyes, eyes as blue as the skies of his native Ohio, as blue as his lonesome traveling heart. As the train enters a long bend, he sees through the window a line of bonfires set like gemstones along the track. The fires reflect in the glossy black sides of the passenger cars, doubling themselves as the train flickers past. He sees men tending them and he wonders what has brought them here. A porter comes through to light the lamps and by their glow, he catches sight of his ghost in the windowpane, white cap and wrinkled shirt and all. He snatches off his cap and rakes his fingers through his hair, making himself a shade more presentable. The act brings his face closer to the window and the firelight illuminates his features from without and a roar goes up from beyond the glass. The men along the tracks are soldiers he sees that now some are in uniform some are in partial uniform and some are not in uniform at all but they are soldiers everyone grant smiles down on them in spite of himself and they respond in kind some of them snap to attention and offer a salute which he returns despite his dishevelment to do less would be an act of disrespect the train moves on and the men holler after him in great delight And Grant draws his cheek up against the window and peers into the distance ahead. By God, he thinks, they've lighted the tracks all the way to Nashville.
6: Wow. That is really b- beautiful and I, it captures, I think, Grant um, very well, just that, that, that sor- short section. Um, John Clinch, in most of your books, you've taken on literary characters like Huck Finn's father and Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge um, and historical figures like Giovanni uh, Battista Bel- Belzoni. Um, what sparked <laughs> great Belzoni, th- yes. What sparked your interest in writing stories that delve deeper into the lives of existing fictional and non-fictional characters?
16: That's a fair question. Uh, in the case of uh, Finn, my first novel, um, I was really inspired by the work of another author, uh, the great John Gardner, who mm, people mm-hmm. are slowly forgetting about. Oh a uh, marvelous author from upstate New York, wrote a book called Grendel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grendel, do you remember Grendel?
6: I'm familiar with the book. I've never read it.
16: Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Grendel is the story of Beowulf told from the point of view of the monster. And uh, <laughs> having read Huck Finn, the monster mm-hmm. inside that book was his father. Right. Uh, and it occurred to me that that might be an interesting thing to take up to uh, to, to retell that story from the point of view of the uh, the evil shadow that haunted it same thing with uh with, with the christmas carol mm-hmm. and this one too it it seems the, the the longer and the harder you look at the evidence whether it's huckleberry finn or a christmas carol or the records we have of ulysses grant and his family um the more you can imagine what was in their hearts. Yeah. And uh, that's what I set out to do.
6: Yeah, What? Um, why Ulysses Grant? And why um, this time in his life?
16: Uh, basically, when I read the uh, chernobyl biography, mm-hmm. which probably everybody who cares about Ulysses <laughs> Grant has <laughs> yes. read, if they haven't, you should. If you've read that and uh, haven't read the memoirs, then that's a good spot mm-hmm. to start too. Uh, the thing I came away with was not the uh, the uh, heroism of his behavior and his leadership in in the civil war it wasn't his uh, his behavior and his accomplishments as a president it was that horrible last year and especially the last month of his life uh when he threw himself uh despite terrible health problems despite uh having no money despite having lost some of his reputation into the business of writing something, his memoirs, mining his own past and his history and his memories, to leave something behind for his family. He wrote right up until uh, three days before he died. Wow! He was—he wrote the end or whatever it is at the end, the last words, three days before he passed away. And if that's not heroism, I don't know what is.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all in all, in the um, um, work of getting his. Um, money for his family after he goes. I'm speaking with John Clinch, author of The General and Julia. Bill, you had a question.
1: I do. I'd like to know how accurate are the historical depictions in your book, The General and Julia, and if they are, in fact, really historically accurate, why tell the story as a novel?
16: uh first thing first thing the first answer to the first question is uh yes i would submit that if you uh t- took out the pages and weighed them one by one probably 95 percent of the weight of the book would be real stuff although that's that's not to say that uh, you know dialogue and so forth is uh, is the real is, is correct because mm-hmm. it, it couldn't possibly be um as for uh, there are only a couple of sequences that i remember making up um, in fact there was there's one that I thought I made up that it turns out it was true I've gotten so engaged in this project um at any rate in why a novel a I'm a novelist uh, B those tools that I have um, of investigating uh, human character I mean that's what I do mostly yeah. um, I'm really interested in individuals their character and I think you can glean a lot. And you can dare to say a lot uh, as a novelist, looking at the record that uh, that you couldn't say as an historian. One one final thing on that subject is uh, is that he during his last month, he yeah last year really he was heavily sedated. He mm-hmm. was uh, he was subjected to all kinds of painkillers. Uh, he might wake up in the morning and get shot full of. Uh, whiskey and uh, laudanum. (laughs) And my question is, how can he? How did he manage to remember so accurately? And he did um, his life? And what was going on in his mind? I thought that gave me a chance to, uh, to imagine Um, what might go on in his mind in terms of hallucination, uh, recollection, imagination, all those things. So that's the stuff that a novelist can do that nobody else can do.
4: Well, John Clinch, uh, this is Buzz. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, so we got our sense of Civil War history uh, from a perspective that right now I don't share. (laughs) However, what we did learn... The war of
16: northern aggression.
4: There you go. What we did learn, however this characterization of Grant as being more gentlemanly, even after fighting that horrific war, after leading his troops to win that surrender at Appomattox. And we were told Grant was a slave owner. Was he that gentlemanly and, and forgiving of Lee and the South? And was he in fact a slave owner?
16: He was a slave owner very early in his life. And he, uh, he released the slaves. That I think it was two men, um, and he, uh, he 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 released them to their own recognizance and freed them. In other words, um, very early, very early in his life, uh, he was a young working man, and uh, never you know never went back. He was in fact at odds with his wife Julia's father, who was indeed a slaveholder yeah. uh, right up until the end of the Civil War. Um, he was a gentleman and he was a kind individual he was he was rough around the edges as you saw from the bit i read in terms of he 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 was not uh he was not highfalutin in any way he didn't put on airs uh in public he let his wife lead the way in public gatherings because she was a much bigger character than he was but he was truly uh decent and he the the main thing that one main thing that I came away with from from working on this book is that he expected as good from other people behavior as he expected from himself. Yeah,
6: um, which I think was his downfall that, in some ways.
16: Yeah, that got him in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got him it got him in financial trouble toward the end when his uh, when a place where he had invested all his money went bankrupt in a Ponzi scheme. And I don't think it served him or the nation very well when he expected the South to go home and, uh, as the Bible says, go and sin no more. Right, right. Uh, Um, right. And I don't think that worked out as well as it might have.
6: Yeah.
4: We are talking with John Clinch. He is the author of The General and Julia. We'll be back with him and Megan Zinn right after these messages. More
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
13: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
1: The Co-op Kitchen is always cooking. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Order sandwich platters or anything platters for lunchtime, party time, or any time. You like to bake? The Co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Bread and brownies, cakes and cookies. Let your creative inspiration
14: flow.
13: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
14: The person you're sleeping with, you know things about them that maybe you shouldn't know. Like, they got up last night at 3 and went down to the kitchen. How do you know? You have one of those mattresses that, well, let's just say you know things you really don't need to know. Sleep on a Theralux mattress from Talon Furniture. Wait, Theralux? What happened? All Talon Furniture ever talks about is therapeutic mattresses. Well, TheraLux is simply Therapeutic's high-end mattress. What makes it high-end? It's a cooling mattress. If you're not sure what cooling mattresses are, we'll show you. A TheraLux mattress has a 20-year warranty and a really high coil count, which means if the person you're sleeping with is tossing and turning or gets up at 3 a.m., you won't even know. And that's the way a good night's sleep ought to go, right? Therapeutic. and now TheraLux. Come to Talon Furniture, just down the hill from Amherst College. Just don't come at 3 a.m. We'll be sound asleep.
5: Where are you in your life? Heading off to college or ready to retire? Buying a home or adding solar panels to your current one? starting a family, or picking out the next car. Or maybe you're making plans to take off and see the world just as soon as you can get on a plane. At UMass 5 College Credit Union, we're here with convenient banking services, technology, and financial guidance that make it all possible. We're member owned, so it's truly all about you. Visit us online at umass5.coop today.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP,
4: And we are listening to a really interesting conversation between Megan Zinn and uh, author and historian John Clinch. Uh, Megan.
6: Yes, uh, John. We're talking about John's new book, The General and Julia. And John will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about The General and Julia on Wednesday, <laughs> January 31st at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on their website, odysseybks.com. Um we we were talking a little bit about the break, um, about how the popular image of Grant, what what people know, is is generally kind of wrong. But I think people know even less about Julia, who is one of the title characters, so to speak, in this book. Can you tell us a little bit about her?
16: Yeah, it turns out that she was uh, the very first first lady to write her own memoir. Oh. Um, and uh, although I didn't really consult her memoir very much, she was, uh, as I say, she was the daughter. Of a slaveholder, mm-hmm. uh, grew up in Missouri. Her father had about had thirty some slaves, and uh, when she and uh, Ulysses Grant first married, they lived on a piece of property that adjoined her father's farm, and that became a real test um, for the both of them uh, and and relative to her father, who. Uh, Really didn't have a whole lot of respect for for the man she'd chosen to marry and uh, lost more and more respect as he rose higher in the uh, in the union organization. Now, the other thing about her, the most fascinating angle about what she did relative to him and relative to his activities and relative to the country is that she had a slave herself uh she didn't own the young woman but she uh she her father owned her Mm -hmm. and she was assigned to take care of julia and she was she was always julia on the road with her husband she was uh she she went almost for everywhere he went all around the uh, the fields of battle Um, so she was with him and you know what her slave girl slave woman at that point was with her as well Boy, did that cause raised eyebrows mm-hmm. uh, in in truth, Grant didn't own her. Julia didn't own her, but they relied upon her and uh, it became a real complicating factor, uh, both in reality and in my book, The mm-hmm. General and Julian.
6: Yeah, yeah. She, I, I would love to know more her, of her, you know, her story, which um, I'm sure is moment. lost to history. Up
4: until this moment, I thought Ulysses S. Grant owned her because we had heard about mm-hmm. about that. Now I know.
6: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Always more complicated.
16: Her, mom, and she ran off. I mean, she she disappeared, and uh, we never saw her again. So she is in the novel, and then at one point she vanishes. Uh, Ulysses imagines a million futures for her, but we can't know what they what the real story might be.
6: Yeah. Um. Are there other um historical figures that you're or literary figures that you're fascinated with? Um. That you might want to write about, or are just sort of things people that you're fascinated with?
16: You know, um, I'll name one character from the who would would be sort of in line with uh with finn and marley and i'll name one historical figure Mm -hmm. and their book literary um from heart of darkness Ah. the the character mr kurtz has always interested me uh he sort of would fall in line with the horrors that i ascribed i think correctly to uh pap finn Mm -hmm. and the wickedness of marley (laughs) i don't know if anybody could take yet another book like that from me (laughs) uh i don't know if i could take another book like that from me um so i don't know about that but um i've always been interested in uh in the work of one of my favorite novelists one of america's greatest novelists herman melville oh
6: yeah um
16: melville of course was a massachusetts boy Mm -hmm. for a lot of his Mm -hmm. life yep um he uh he had a a complicated life his career started and stalled um, he was still writing Moby Dick when the first pages were rolling off the printing press. Wow! <laughs> I mean, yeah,
6: he, yeah. He had kind,
16: of, he had, he had kind of a, kind of a love, a one-sided, unrequited love affair with uh, Nathaniel, Nathaniel Hawthorne.
6: Hawthorne. Right. Um, yeah, all and kinds his house of is in in, in Yeah, and yeah, he Pitchfield. and he and Nathaniel Hawthorne met yeah, on on Monument Pitchfield. Mountain on a hike on Monument Mountain. Right. Yeah, Yeah.
16: and and in fact, um, you know, the the Great White Whale was inspired by uh, Mount Monadnock. Oh, interesting. No, what's the the mountain there? The
6: Um, Monument Mountain in Great Barrington. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, Yeah, so
16: I I love the guy. Um, I actually was working on a book about him that I've set aside to do something else. Um, and it had the evocative. I shouldn't give it away. Yeah, but it yeah. No, yeah. Don't, well, give we'll we'll away, don't give it up. away. don't give it away. don't have a lot of time. Maybe yeah. I will. Yeah,
6: man overboard. Uh, man, oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> so um, I've been speaking with John Clinch, um and his new about his new book, *The General and Julia*. On and he will be at Odyssey Book talking about *The Gen* Odyssey Bookshop on talking about *The General and Julia* on Wednesday, January thirty first at seven p.m. Thank you so much, John.
16: Well, thank you for having me, here. I really, really appreciate it. It's been fun. And it's been Pleasure. fun for us,
4: too, and it sounds like a fascinating book. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us today. And we'll be back with you tomorrow. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern time, Monday through
0: Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 1015 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time,
8: Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program.
0: WHMP.
13: This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turners Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.
13: It's 11 o'clock.